today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 15. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, brother and sisters. Nice to see you back after one week of break, <laughs> uh, having our Zoom service at home. Beginning on Ash Wednesday, Lent is a season of reflections and preparation before the celebrations of Easter. By observing the 40 days of Lent, Christian replicate Jesus Christ's sacrifice and withdrawal into the desert for 40 days. Lent is marked by fasting, both from food and festivities, and prayer and self-denial with the goal of drawing closer to God. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. We will be following the lectionary for the Lent starting from this Sunday and for the next five Sundays. Every year, the Holy Gospel reading on the first Sunday in Lent includes an account of the temptation of our Lord. This year, we hear from Mark, who tells it the most briefly. Now, to Mark chapter 1, chapter, uh, verses 9 to 15, the writer, with almost shocking gravity, relates three major events. First, Jesus' baptism, verses 9 to 11. Second, his temptation, verses 12 to 13. And third, his inaugural preaching, verses 14 and 15. Now let's look at the first section. The baptism of Jesus. When we read verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This baptism brings up an obvious question. Why was Jesus baptized by John? We ask because John offered a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That is Mark chapter 1 verse 4. But the Bible tells us, uh, teaches us that Jesus lived a sinless life. Then why was he baptized? By being baptized, it was a way for him to identify with the sinners he came to save. He took the place of us sinners and was baptized with a baptism of repentance and 
confessions of sin. His baptism was also a symbol of death and resurrection by which he would save them. The full significance of Jesus' baptism will take the whole gospel story, his death and his resurrection to explain. The first detail of the baptism is the opening of heaven. The other gospel writers describe the opening of the heavens, but Mark used strong, very forceful language to say, the heaven was torn or split open, verse 10. To describe the heavens in this way, splitting or cracking open above Jesus is a way to say that God is speaking and acting in this moment and event. You see, Jesus illuminated the gap between heaven and earth. In him, God dwelt in human flesh and interacted with us. And all this was a foreshadow of the ultimate way in which God would break through to earth. For centuries, a thick veil has separated the most holy place in God's temple in Jerusalem from everyone else. But at Jesus' time of death, Mark tells us, in chapter 15, verses 37 to 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So Mark is telling us that God has answered their prayers through Jesus. The heavens are open. God has come, come down. The long-awaited Saviour is here. The second detail, pointing to God breaking through at Jesus' baptism, is the descending of God's Spirit. Jesus was anointed by the, the Spirit at this point. During the Old Testament time, they anointed kings and priests by pouring oil upon their heads committing them to the function and office in which they were to serve. This is the picture of what is now occurring in Jesus' life, in which they were to serve. Sorry. He is being anointed by God through the Holy Spirit with power. Power to meet the demands of the ministry upon which he is about to launch. His public ministry begins with the anointing by the Holy Spirit with power. As mentioned earlier, it was a way for him to identify with the sinner he came to save by being baptized. It is very significant that the Father gives him the gift of the Holy Spirit the very moment that Jesus took our place. There is no greater gift God can give to them. There is no greater need that we have as individuals than to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Holy Spirit 
that man is able to overcome the power of sin and guilt and fear within us. Thus, when Jesus began to take our place, the gift of the Holy Spirit was immediately given to him. Remarkable as they may be. Nevertheless, all these things that happened to Jesus can happen and indeed must happen to us. He was taking our place. Therefore, what happened to him must also happen to us. That is why Jesus, standing with his disciples after the resurrection, said to them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is true. The Spirit of God must come upon us. The gift of the Holy Spirit must be given to us so that we might have the power to live as God wants us to live. This is not so that we can perform dramatic acts, but rather in a new quality of life. It's a quality of life which is beautifully and resistless and yet quiet and gentle. Notice the symbol of the power that is given here is a dove. The third detail pointing to God breaking through at Jesus' baptism is the voice of the Father over his Son. He said in verse 11, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, the voice of the Father God was rare during the life of Jesus. But when he did speak, this is a type of thing he would say. After Jesus' baptism, he remained silent until the Mount of Transfigurations. After Peter suggested they build permanent tents for Jesus, along with Elijah and Moses, who had appeared there, God said, Mark chapter 9 verse 7 said, This is my beloved. Listen to him. So the Father's voice set Jesus apart from everyone else in history. He is beloved. He is better than Moses and Elijah. He is worth of the kind of service and allegiance you only give to God. He is the one who will break out God's grace to the world. Next, the temptation of Jesus. Mark does not include robust detail about Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness. Matthew and Luke both record three direct temptations from Satan, along with Jesus' scriptural rebuttals to each. Instead, Mark gives an overview of the events. He isn't as interested in the dialogue, but the action itself. Notice the strong language Mark uses. His account is very brief, but it is highly suggestive 
there are four things here. First, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 12. Drove him means that Jesus felt a strong inner compulsion, a strong, a powerful urge to go into the wilderness and face the tempter on his own ground. This was intended to toughen him up. This is what God always does with his men and women. He toughens us by driving us out into these kinds of experiences. This is what happened to Jesus. Second, Mark suggests one other writer, do not, that Jesus was tempted by the devil all through his 40 days period. In other words, the devil came to try him out in every possible way, body, soul, and spirit. He brought and assaulted and sifted and scrutinized and assailed him and bombarded him with every thought and every temptation that we human beings are reject to, to, to sorry, are subject to. Third, despite the fact that he was without human help and assailed by the tempter in all this way, nevertheless, he was not alone. He was sustained by a ministry of comfort which came in unusual ways. He was with the Wabis and the angels came and ministered to him. Wabis were all around and throughout the wilderness area. But Jesus was not afraid of them. He was with them. Mark says, they were his companions. They comforted him and helped him. I can picture Jesus, his body cold from hunger, snuggled up between two mountain lions and being ministered to physically by the animals. Fourth, the angels ministered to him. That means his thought life was sustained. His inner life, his emotions were upheld. His mental faculties kept clear. That is the ministry of angels. Invincible, yet be, being very real. Many of us have experienced the ministry of angels without even knowing it. It appears that Jesus was able to resist his temptations not by some brute strength or great intelligence or severe discipline. None of those things are mentioned. What is mentioned is the presence of God. The Spirit which drove him into the wilderness, did not abandon him there. No, the Spirit stayed with him. The angel tended to him. He was not alone. That was what kept him from giving in. He was not alone and the Spirit 
boasted him during his struggle. Maybe the only way that we too can resist that which tempts us is by remembering that God's Spirit is with us too and that we are not alone. We are going to move on to the next section. Jesus begins his ministry. Finally, equipped by the Spirit, toughened and tested, Jesus comes into Galilee. Note that here Mark passes over a full years of Jesus' ministry. You have to obtain the details from John's Gospel, for John alone records it. His encounter with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the wedding at Canaan, etc. Mark passes over all this and begins his account of the ministry of Jesus with the calling of the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Verse 15 says, Jesus proclaimed, The time is fulfilled. The word time here is not chronos in Greek, which is measured by calendar or clock. It is kairos, a time of critical spiritual godly decision. Not every day, but the day. Jesus doesn't just say God's rule is coming. He also said the time is fulfilled. It is, of course, Kairos time of which Jesus is speaking, not the steady beating of the clock that characterizes Kronos, but rather the magisteria, pregnant, significant Kairos of God's action and activity. Interestingly, the only other time Jesus utters the word fulfilled in Mark is at Gethsemane, when after he has been betrayed and is about to be arrested. In chapter 14, verse 49, he says, Let the scriptures be fulfilled, even as all his disciples then deserted him in fear. Now back in Mark chapter 1, his message was the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he mean by the kingdom of God? God's kingdom is mentioned 14 times in Mark. Its coming, its peculiarities, to whom it belongs, and challenges to its entry. God's kingdom is not a place but a power. It is God's dynamic potency power and present to put right all that is wrong in this world. Jesus came with the good news that all the power of God is now available to break the helpless deadlock into which man has fallen. Scripture tells us that man is natural condition is his natural condition is helpless. 
no matter how much we like to think that we are able to do something to correct our condition, we would be absolutely helpless and hopeless without the aid of God. In fact, human life would be impossible. The good news is that a breakthrough has occurred. God's power has broken through. Jesus came to announce that the king is at hand. The one who can master a life, put it in order, bring peace and harmony into it, and supply a power which produce which will produce a character no one else can rival. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand to anyone and everyone who wants it. God's help is available. This is why Jesus tells everyone to repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 15. He isn't describing two distinct things, but one shift movement. Repent describes what we turn from sin. One believe describes what we turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The king has come. He has brought a kingdom and you can come into it. Stop living life without him. Turn around and go to his way. Remember, Mark wants us to consider Jesus and for Jesus to confront us and when he does, he must, we must turn around and follow him. Finally, look at the timing. The timing of Jesus' preaching of his message, at least here in Mark, is interesting. He started to declare the kingdom after John was arrested. Verse 14. John had declared the kingdom also. But now that he is of the sin, Jesus picks up and perfects his preaching work. This clause casts a long shadow over John's superior successor, Jesus, who will also be betrayed, arrested, and handed over. Like John, Jesus too will die at the hand of a weak overlord who is outwitted by others' schemes. The kingdom proclaimed by Jesus clashes against mortal principalities and powers that do not gracefully yield to God's governance. Today, we have Jesus' baptism, temptation, and preaching for our meditation. Let's see how these words of Mark shape our understanding about Jesus and about us as Jesus' disciples. Out of the water, into the wilderness, and then out into ministry, Jesus stays true and faithful despite it all. Staring down the danger, overcoming Satan and his temptations, but still he is bold enough to preach the same message that God John the Baptist arrested and killed, even though he will end up 
the same. Make no mistake, his temptation in the wilderness was but a warm-up for the way of the cross. Jesus' faithfulness was tested in the wilderness. His faithfulness will continue all the way to the agony in Gethsemane and at Golgotha. Jesus has work to do there, to pay the price of our unfaithfulness, the sin that brings death with it. That is what he takes on himself at the cross. And that is how Jesus finally defeats Satan's in the process. He will tremble, he will tremble, Satan underfoot, even as the serpent strikes out at his heel. Sin, Satan, death, hell, all defeated and destroyed by the one who remains faithful from the water to the wilderness to the wood of the cross. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil and to replace them with his own heavenly works. Forgiveness, righteousness, resurrections, life everlasting. Here is your divine champion, my friends. This Jesus is the man you need with you to make it through the wilderness. And make no mistake about this either. You are in the wilderness. Immediately, as soon as you were baptized, you are set in the midst of a wilderness. This world is a wilderness. And Satan is on the prowl here. He goes about like a roaring lion, looking for whom he can devour. The, the devil is like a deadly serpent ready to strike out of the water into the wilderness that is how it goes for us too we have been baptized in christ you see satan hates christians he is our lifelong enemies the adversary and he is aiming for you you have a target on your back it was placed there when the sign of the cross was placed on your forehead and upon your heart at your baptism. Satan will tempt you in, the, in whatever way he can to try to get you away from Jesus. The devil knows he cannot beat Jesus, but he, if he can get you away from Jesus, Satan will tempt you to let God's word go into one ear and out from the others. Satan will tempt you to think you have better things to do than to go to church or maybe disciple, uh, this DT, discipleship team, or do daily devotions. Anything to get you away from Jesus because when you are on your own, you are vulnerable. Now, let me suggest two questions we could ask ourselves when we are taking, thinking about possible wilderness discipline in this first week of Lent. First, what has gotten such a hold on me 
that I can't imagine being able to live without it. Is it social media? The daily latte at Starbucks? Chocolate? And so on. If we have become so dependent on something or some habit that we can't imagine living without it, maybe that's a sign we need to live without it for a while. Second, what might be the biggest distraction from God in my life right now? What is taking up the time that I could be giving to quiet prayer and Bible reading? What is filling my mind when I could be focusing on loving God with my whole heart and loving my neighbor as myself? Where do my thoughts, money, and spare time go? Is it possible it might be my real God, even though I think I'm worshipping the one true God? Let me encourage you to think about these two questions. Don't put it off. Remind yourself of these questions. Think and pray about them. And make some decision about Lenten disciplines that are right for you. Finally, let me encourage you to use these seasons to the full this year. Turn away from distractions and turn toward God. Trust me, you will be surprised at how much benefit you get from it. Amen. Let me end with praying the collect of First Sunday in Lent. Collect is a short prayer for a particular day of the church liturgical calendar. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.